This episode of The Protocol is sponsored by the Stellar Community Fund. Dive deep into the blockchain realm with The Protocol Podcast with Coindesk founding editor of The Protocol newsletter, Brad Count, and tech journalists, Sam Kessler and Margot Nykirk. They unravel the intricate technologies powering cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum, one block at a time. Just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Hello and welcome to the Protocol Podcast. I'm Brad Cowan here with my co-hosts, Margot Nykirk and Sam Kessler. Excited to dive into today's show with the latest news and developments in technology behind crypto and blockchains. First, please do not forget to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, The Protocol, on Coindesk.com. Let's dive right into it. Our first story, we're talking about Ethereum developers create DN404 tokens after ERC404's send network fees surging. Okay, that is just a lot of stuff that probably a lot of people have zero idea what any of that is. Even like regular, you know, crypto (laughs) people don't even, all this stuff was just invented two weeks ago. But anyway, Sam, why don't you tell us about this story? Yeah, like you said, this is new. So ERC-404 is this new token standard developed by this NFT protocol, Pandora. Essentially what it is, is it's just like a fungible NFT, which sounds like a sort of misnomer or an oxymoron rather. What is a fungible, non-fungible token? What they do is they combine fungible tokens, just like a regular cryptocurrency with a non-fungible token so that you can, for example, trade fractions of NFTs, have the NFT burn in your wallet, and then to the person who you've traded the fraction to, if they get enough of this fraction, they can mint a new version of the NFT in their wallet. That's kind of like a vague way of explaining it, but that's at a high level what this concept is. And there's like all this controversy around it that our great colleague Dan Kuhn wrote about. So um, we can get into all that. Um, Margo, you follow the Ethereum world, so maybe you've got some sense of, you know, what the response has been up until now? Yeah, what you were sort of getting at was that ERC-404 is not an official standard, Mm -hmm. that it's sort of been like created and marketed with that framing. ERC stands for Ethereum Request for Comment. Usually when you get these standards, you go through like a process and it gets approved by the community and by the devs. And this is not the case for ERC-404. It's just called ERC-404. It's not an actual legitimate standard. And so it's been interesting sort of to see the fallout in the wider like Ethereum ecosystem as this protocol has sort of surged to the front lines of the news, I guess. But at the same time, I've like noticed from the devs, like they haven't said that much about it. Do you guys have any takes on on this whole controversy around ERC-404? I mean, in general, the idea seems smart and useful of a way of fractionalizing these NFTs. I mean, some of them are, you know, they can be quite expensive, right? I mean, an NFT can be anything, right? I mean, an NFT could be a Super Bowl ticket, but and then you have a Super Bowl ticket that's whatever, like, you know, 120 grand. <laughs> Fractionalize that, you know, where you're only going to toss in a thousand bucks, but you're basically going to speculate on the cost of a Super Bowl ticket. But I don't know, or a piece of fine art where you have, you know, like 5% of it. But it seems like there's lots of different ways people have tried to do this. This is just kind of the latest. Is that the way you all think about it? 
Yeah, I mean, maybe one thing that I didn't do a good job of is kind of like explaining how this works and why it's cool. Essentially, just very simply, again, what happens is rather than just being able to own one NFT, which is, you know, the way things work now, and it has problems, namely, most notably with liquidity, like if I want to buy an NFT, only one person has it, you know, where am I going to get that NFT? I can buy NFTs that are in a collection, so on, but it, it, it's just price discovery, all these things are hard. What this does is it says, hey, an NFT can be broken down. So if you own a whole NFT, say it's like 100 tokens, if you own all 100 of them, you have that NFT. If you sell one of those 100 tokens, it goes down to 99. You have 99% of the NFT. That's actually not a, a concept. So you don't have 99%. You have none of the NFT. What it does is it burns that NFT in your wallet. And then if you send those 99 tokens to somebody who has one and they have a whole now, they have 100, it mints a new NFT for them. So it's actually not the same NFT before. It's a new minted version. But in the context of something, Brad, you give the example of like tickets. That actually makes a lot of sense. Say you don't have a ticket that is worthless. But if you're able to scrap together, you know, enough pieces of a ticket, now you have a whole non-fungible token. You have a ticket. That's really cool. And also there's like a bunch of trading applications on top of it that could, you know, just with liquidity in general, like people love to speculate. This app opens new avenues for speculation. So it is like a kind of cool idea. But again, this whole thing that Margo was talking about, around how they didn't go through the formal process to propose this is why uh, part of probably the entire reason of why we're, we're talking about it today. Was it false advertising? What if this thing's broken? People think it's legitimate. They start using this and they realize they don't have their tickets. That's the problem. It's not as audited as you might hope. I, I think it's interesting you bring up the trading perspective because I, you know when I came into this podcast or this recording, I have sort of rolled my eyes at this. Like, why is this actually needed? And you know, there's so many problems on Ethereum, like this is what we're dealing with, you know, that does kind of make sense in a like a narrow scope. I wonder, though, if this is just like another hype cycle, like how how persistent is this? Also, because like you said, this is not something that's been officially approved. We don't know what the security risks are behind this. We, it hasn't been properly audited. Crypto is risky, but this is very risky, in my opinion. And so it's another one of those interesting stories to follow, especially the fallout from this. But you know, I guess with everything in crypto these days is, is this really needed is my sort of my take on all of this. Well, that's in the Fundstrat newsletter. I was just reading that this morning. They were, they were just saying that what we're actually seeing is just another meme coin. Sure. Incarnation. And, but I mean, I think it is important to point out here, Sam, I don't know if you, I don't remember if you pointed this out, but that it, it is causing some congestion, right? Mm -hmm. Like the the frenzy is real enough that it's being seen. You can witness it in like a, a rise in the gas fees, right? Yeah. That's the other piece of this story that I did neglect to mention, which is that gas fees on Ethereum are rising to, you know, record levels, at least as far as recent history is concerned, all on, you know, or, or largely on account of this new trend. Is it a meme? Is it all hype? Probably everything has been meme and hype up until now, basically in yeah. crypto and yeah. on Ethereum DeFi. But broadly, there has been this DeFi resurgence that we've seen on Ethereum, which I'm, I think we'll get into later as we talk about airdrops. But this also might be kind of a part of that. The appetite is there again for these sort of like speculative things, mm -hmm. which for DeFi broadly, if not this token standard, it, it might be viewed as a, a some something of a positive. But I think you're right, Margo. Like, what is the use case for this this particular technological innovation? I don't know if it has legs or it's just a step towards something else, right? But all right, well, let's move on to our next topic. Okay, Satoshi era Bitcoin function opcat. 
dust it off as development fervor grows. So, you know, this is just more on the ongoing theme of building on Bitcoin, right? I mean, people are suddenly excited about the possibility of, you know, some of the the stuff on Bitcoin that we've seen on Ethereum and some of the other, you know, alt ones and layer twos and some of the other ecosystems. And this is actually, I mean, Jamie Crawley wrote this story and he did a really good job of kind of figuring it out. But there's some history here, which is this opcat function was actually included, I think, on the Bitcoin Core software, or I don't think it was called Bitcoin Core software at that point. It was just the Bitcoin software. You know, very early days, network launched the Bitcoin blockchain launched in 2009. And then 2010, Satoshi took it out because there were certain risks. But now these some developers are saying, let's bring it back because technology has apparently reduced some of those risks. And this will enable uh, the next wave of building on Bitcoin. I don't know. What what do you all think about this? Yeah, I think it's great. I feel like we've been coming now almost weekly or maybe bi-weekly been talking about building on Bitcoin. And so it's great to sort of hear that there's this resurgence with modifying and uh, updating the network. So this is interesting. I mean, I wonder, though, if you can kind of like help me understand, you know, knowing very little, um, which is a theme about Bitcoin development. I I wonder if you can explain what this opcat thing actually is. Like, what does this enable for the network for developers? Well... I probably shouldn't go into too much technical depth because I will quickly screw it up. But what I will say is the cat refers to the word concatenate. Mm-hmm. And so basically they're putting two elements together. And the idea was that would quickly get too much and it would not only... uh result in exponential memory requirements, but it would also expose the network to some sort of security risks. So if I'm understanding this properly, so an opcode, you have these on all blockchains. Essentially, a a blockchain can be thought of like an operating system and an opcode is just like at a very root level, a function that you can do on the chain. That's like, uh, when I say root level, it's like addition, subtraction, in some cases, exponentials, multiplication, you know, some more crazy things. This is like concatenating things together. And I guess the idea um, for them is that for, for developers of Bitcoin relative to other things, other protocols, the idea of something like this being a burden to the network might be more prescient because Bitcoin has historically, like we've alluded to in past episodes and today, been much more reticent to expand on its core functionality because they don't want to make that big computer, that operating system too heavy for the network to run. They want to keep things as simple as possible. I wonder, knowing, like I said, very little about this, how much of this concern around this opcat stuff, which is apparently supposed to make things better for L2s, DeFi, and so on, on top of Bitcoin, I wonder how much of that concern is born out of like a real genuine sense of anxiety around the chain getting bogged down, and how much of it is just kind of a a more, I guess, fight or flight sort of a thing that you get with Bitcoin developers, where they're just constitutionally incapable of, you know, uh, adjusting the core programming, the the core rules of the chain. I think it gets at some of the core issues, which is, you know, Bitcoin does not have kind of a leading organization. It really is much more of this like open source collaborative, you know, spirit, which means 
a lot of times things have to have consensus in order to get merged in. Mm-hmm. And so that is kind of one of the perennial debates going on. And how do you enable this building on Bitcoin? Do you can you do it without changes to the code? Mm-hmm. So there was a breakthrough. Robin Linus is it's called BitVM. What the breakthrough there was they could they could add some of this functionality without having to to get consensus, you know. Mm-hmm. And then separately, I was just reading this proposal yesterday. In fact, one of the authors is from Botanics Labs, which happens to be building like an EVM compatible layer two on Bitcoin. You know, it's like a little proof of stake network that sits on Bitcoin. Anyway, one of the developers works for that company. But they were in their proposal. They talk about how some things work without those changes to the code. You can build a layer two, but it's a lot easier if you can get this change, I guess, you know, because it just gives you a little more flexibility. I don't know. Does that answer your question, Sam? Yeah, I think it it does just become a question long term of like, it it almost feels like talking about government or something when you talk about Bitcoin, Ethereum to a lesser extent, um, to an almost non-existent extent on other chains. I'm sure you hear like slippery slope sort of arguments where it's like, oh, once we add, you know, this back, I mean, this should be something easy. Like it used to be in there and now, you know, machines are strong enough that we can actually, you know, nodes and clients are and so on are strong enough that they can handle this. Like if you can't get this in, maybe that slippery slope is not something that you're going to go down. Margo, you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, no, I was curious because like, you know, when you introduced this, it sounded like this change, like, yes, there are these security risks, but it's sort of with the mind, it's being brought back in with the mindset of, it enables like this additional building like that th- this building on bitcoin is not stopping that there will be additional changes maybe to the protocol i wonder specifically like high level what is it that this change in code can enable in terms of building like what is that goal that they're heading towards i mean they gave some examples layer 2s should be a little easier mm-hmm. They talked about uh, decentralized exchanges, so I guess some of the DeFi stuff. Mm-hmm. The, uh, there were a couple other examples in Jamie's story. No, I mean, that's yeah. that's great. It sounds like it's, you know, like we've talked about, like mimicking Ethereum a little bit, but, you know, we, <laughs> we, we love to see it. Well, it is true. The Ethereum Foundation, you know, they take a long time to get these things through, but more or less, like if they say they want it, it seems like it probably gets onto the roadmap. Whereas I, I kind of disagree with, oh, really? with, okay. with the with yeah. the. I mean, the Ethereum Foundation is like it's definitely a, a central key component of the yeah. Ethereum ecosystem, and you know, a lot of the core devs are employed by the Ethereum Foundation. But I wouldn't say that the Ethereum Foundation is involved in you know the roadmap and the direction, or at least that's what they would say. You know, people can debate it a little bit, but it's not a sitting like member of making these changes, you know, as an institution. But that is the difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum is that, you know, Ethereum, the Ethereum Foundation is so uh, vast in what it touches in the Ethereum ecosystem, whether it be grants, whether it be, you know, employing core yeah. devs, whether, whether it be helping create these clients that we've talked about. And Bitcoin doesn't have that. Yeah. But anyway, back to Bitcoin, it's still great to see that it's giving room for more of this growth. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's all a spectrum too regarding what you're sure. saying, Margot, like our, yeah. a lot of like the history of this goes back to not a tech conversation, but a conversation around regulatory things yeah. and ICOs and so on. Yeah. And the reason why these foundations might want to distinguish themselves from 
core development. I do think you're right, though, that in the case of Ethereum, at least if not relative to Bitcoin, relative to a lot of other ecosystems, you do just by virtue of its like largesse. It's much larger than other you know, comparable ecosystems. They're able mm-hmm. to have more people pitching in. They're able to have, you know, more people with dueling incentives pitching in on the development of the of the chain. Whereas with Bitcoin, when they're not actually doing that much, that decentralization means uh, um, a little bit more. At least in the case of Ethereum, you see more people, you know, even centralized parties weighing in because they're actually making changes in a way that Bitcoin until recently doesn't. And we could talk about this all for a while. Yeah. Well, all right. Let's wrap that one there. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about, well, a variety of things, airdrop season, and also how it relates to what we're seeing on Eigenlayer. It's going to be fun and complicated. (laughs) All right. We'll be right back. Have a blockchain project idea and need funding to make it happen? Look no further. The Stellar Community Fund is here to help bring your project to life on the Stellar Network. This year alone, over $10 million in XLM awards have been allocated across more than 100 innovative projects. And your idea could be next. Approved project submissions can receive up to $100,000 in XLM per project. So head over to communityfund.stellar.org to get started. Calling all developers. Score a consensus 2024 developer pass for just $109, but act fast. Only a limited number of these passes are available. You may have heard that consensus ain't for devs, but here's why you're wrong. Consensus is the only place you can fully immerse yourself in a multi-chain environment and learn directly from 20-plus chains, including Arbitrum, Chainlink, Solana, and more. Enjoy three days of intensive learning with technical talks, 40-plus expert speakers, and 20-plus in-depth workshops, including dedicated half-days for Ethereum and Bitcoin, and three full days of programming on our Protocol Village stage. Consensus 2024 is happening May 29th through 31st in Austin, Texas. Don't miss your chance to network at curated developer meetups, find new career opportunities, and explore hundreds of side events and hacker houses around town. Grab your $109 developer pass today, but remember, this exclusive offer is limited. Visit consensus.coindesk.com now to secure your developer pass before they're gone. Explore the epicenter of blockchain innovation at Consensus 2024. All right. Welcome back. We have our next topic. Actually, I sort of teased it right before the break. So, Marco, why don't you just kind of tell us what's the big idea that we're going to be talking about? Yeah. Airdrop season, free money, basically. (laughs) But Starknet is among the ones that are leading the airdrop season with its big announcement that their much-anticipated Stark token is going to become eligible to a variety of users in the StarkNet ecosystem, the Ethereum ecosystem, and in the non-Web3 ecosystem. Like, I guess, I don't know if there's an ecosystem for that, but basically non-Web3 users are also going to be eligible. I guess we're recording on a Wednesday. They announced today 
that they're making 1.3 million wallets available for this token and it'll be airdropped on the on the 20th and they and users have until June 20th to claim it. So exciting stuff for for the, you know, much anticipated Stark token. Margo, let me ask you Starknet. Mhm. Real briefly, you know, what is Starknet and Starknet's been operating, right? But why do they need a token now? Yeah, so Starknet's a layer 2 uh built on Ethereum. There is ZK you use, you know, ZK rollout they use zero knowledge. But they have their own programming language called Cairo, so it's not necessarily uh, ZKEVM. Because of that barrier, there's been a little bit more of a distance between StarkNet and other ZK rollups that are ZKEVM, like Polygon, like Scroll, Scroll is new, but, but Matter Labs, I'm thinking of ZK Sync. There hasn't been a token yet on StarkNet. It has its own ecosystem. There's a whole bunch of dApps and you know exchanges and just like a, a gaming, I think, is also pretty big on Starknet. And so now there's the Stark token that the team, the Stark, well, the, the announcement came from the Starknet Foundation. And the primary developer firm behind Starknet is a company called Starkware. They've come out with this token that is primarily going to be used for governance purposes and to participate in this Starknet ecosystem. But I thought it's really interesting because I, I do speak a lot to the Starknet folks. And they're very much Ethereum aligned is what they call it. Meaning they are pursuing their interests in the sake of, for the sake of Ethereum's interests. And so they've made this StarkNet airdrop pretty big to allow people like home, like solo stakers, including people who stake with Lido and other liquid staking providers or core developers from Ethereum, people who've, you know, been crucial to implementing some of the biggest code changes to make Ethereum what it is today, as well as also these non web three developers who develop in the sake of, you know, for the sake of open source. It's really interesting because this airdrop is sort of getting at not necessarily always what everyone is excited about, about, you know, free money, but also that it has this vision and this mission and to like give back to the core of their ecosystem, which is Ethereum. So I think the reaction on Twitter so far has, X, I should say, has been positive. I've seen a lot of core ETH people excited to see that, you know, they're being rewarded for their hard, hard work in some sense. But yeah, that's sort of what the takeaway from from this specific airdrop has been. Yeah, maybe to place this into a broader context, too. It's interesting to see like Ethereum DeFi having a, a big, I say DeFi because we're talking about tokens. I don't know, Starkware has DeFi on it, but it's a layer two. But anyway, Ethereum DeFi is kind of having this big airdrop moment. It follows like a similar moment on the Solana blockchain that we talked about a while ago, where a bunch of these protocols yeah. that people have used, haven't used, some haven't even heard of, are rewarding people a, a ton of money, essentially what it equates to through these airdrops. But maybe to step back and give the, the more cynical take on airdrop season, what it's all about. I mean, there's a bunch of reasons why projects, and I'm not talking about Starkware specifically, there's a lot of projects that are launching tokens and a lot of different projects have different motivations and um, tokenomics and, and so on and so forth. But broadly, an airdrop giving this quote unquote free money to people. What it what often happens is you have these teams that have spent a bunch of time and resources building something. Now what they're doing is they're creating a marketplace for their token, ostensibly as a way to reward people. Also though, um, to create a new market for this token and to lure in new users, but also as a way to reward rightly their own contributions. So it'll go to investors. It'll go to their own team members and so on and so forth. And all of these different tokens are going to have very different distributions. I mean, this is basic stuff for anybody who's been following this ecosystem for a while, the crypto ecosystem broadly. But it always does bear mentioning when we're talking about airdrops, like they're not all created equally. 
You want to yeah. be really careful that you're not like dumped on and so on and so forth. But one other thing that I'll say here is that we have seen the rise of this trend and we might talk about it in the future points. So the idea of a bunch of protocols that are kind of incenting users to come and join them to deposit their money, so on and, and so forth for the prospect, not of um, necessarily interest, but points, which are this kind of like loosely defined metric that will be used to allocate future airdrops. You're seeing this in the liquid restaking landscape, which we've talked about and we'll talk about more later, but people are accruing points that don't have any value so that they can later maybe get an airdrop that hasn't been confirmed yet for regulatory, legal, like lawyer mm -hmm. reasons. It's all pretty interesting, but it is incredibly speculative. So this airdrop season, you know, has a lot of facets, the Starkwares, the points, the so on and so forth. But that's also why we were going to make the connection to Eigenlayer, right? Is that yeah. people are piling into Eigenlayer because they might get the airdrops from all these things that Eigenlayer is going to secure, right? Yeah, I mean, that's like a tangible, but also like, you can be cynical about this, but you can also be like realistic about this as like a, a mechanism to get people in where Eigenlayer, the restaking thing on Ethereum, where you can stake with them, and then they'll help secure other networks and reward you extra interest. The whole idea with Eigenlayer, which has just directed like $6 billion in deposits in just a few months since it started opening and closing deposits, yeah. um, it's attracted all this money, like 1.5% of all Ether, according to DeFi Llama. The reason it's able to do this is because a bunch of platforms that have been built on top of it that are rewarding points on top of native Eigenlayer points to people who deposit into Eigenlayer through them. But the whole point of Eigenlayer ultimately is going to be that it rewards interest to people on top of their deposits. But today, those interests, again, are points because that extra interest that, you know, comes from core protocols and stuff without getting into the technology of it, which we'll do on a later episode, I'm sure, and did on a previous episode, it doesn't exist yet. So the native, like, the, it's all speculative. Um, and so with airdrop season, it's exciting, but it's also kind of a signal that we're leading, you know, we're, we're moving into these economies that are a little bit more precarious in their fundamental structure. Well, I think we need to wrap it up, but StarkNet... Also, Wormhole, uh, they announced there's their airdrop yeah. coming. You know, yeah. that'll mm -hmm. be another big one. But same kind of question. Like, Wormhole's been operating. Why do they need a, a token now? And I, I don't know. I was just kind of thinking about this. Like, part of it is because that's what they're supposed to do, right? Like, if that's yeah. a reasonable answer, like, they're kind you know, the, the criticism is these things are all centralized in some way. So you, you want to turn it over to the community whether that is true that's sort of you know the fig leaf at least but there's all these people you know to your point margo they want to get paid you know yeah no yeah. And they're competing against uh, you know i mean the money printer aspect of these things like the all these projects they have they print their own token it's like they have a money printer so why not use yeah. that every other competitors are using it so they might as well Mo they kind of have to most of these tokens it should be noted also like we're talking about this on a podcast we all have american <laughs> accents because we live here we're not going to be able to claim these things yes. i mean we're also journalists we're not claiming these things anyway probably no. <laughs> none of us but it's not available in the United States for a reason. There's regulatory reasons in addition to these kind of like high flying, like philosophical reasons 
why one might want to transition to DAO governance. And it gets to the Howey test, it gets into the, all these other things, but you're appealing to the community by transitioning to DAO governance, but you're also looking at the government and saying, hey, we're not issuing a security, we're actually transferring governance and we're releasing tokens yeah. that give you votes in this system. It, it's about a lot more than rewarding the community. You can be cynical or not about it, but it's like good to be realistic. And yeah, our job as journalists is going to be to figure out the real DAOs from the loosely, no. you know, creating markets that mm -hmm. you can dump into. Margo, any final thoughts here before we wrap? Sam nailed it. I was going to bring up that, you know, we're U.S. citizens. We're yeah. recording, recording in the United States. So U.S. citizens, you can't participate in the Stark airdrop. <laughs> also, if you happen to be on the OFAC list, which I hope you're not, but... You know, if you are, you're also not part of that list. So, uh, you know, Russia, Iran, China, hey. and the U.S., and whoever else, North Koreans. Here on the Protocol it. Podcast, we accept all viewers. Let's just put it that way. Sure. We're yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, thank you, Margo. And that is a wrap for this week. Thank you for listening to the Protocol Podcast. If you have any questions about any stories or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Protocol. You can listen to us weekly on Coindesk Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, I'm throwing another reminder here. Please subscribe to our weekly newsletter, The Protocol, on coindesk.com. Thank you. And a shout out to our producer, Michelle Musso who keeps us on track and makes us sound smart-er. <laughs> we'll see you next week. Thanks a lot.